Welcome to A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, a podcast about geek culture by lawyers, with your hosts, Ben Siders and Kirk Damon. Today's episode is sponsored by Senslo Shen, makers of Polybius, the most fun you'll never remember. Welcome back to A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, the podcast that asks interesting questions that don't have any answers with your host, Ben Siders. That's me, and the other guy is Kirk Damon. That's Kirk, as in the captain of the Enterprise. We are intellectual property lawyers and certified geeks practicing law in St. Louis, Missouri. You can find me, Ben, on Twitter at Benjamin Siders, and you can find Kirk at KirkDMN. You can follow this podcast on Twitter at LGGPod, and all of this information is on our very fancy website, LGGPodcast.com. This week's topic is video games and specifically reverse engineering. A topic comes to us from Kevin from ISCA BBS. So thank you, Kevin. <laughs> talking about, you know, like, you know, old technology, which we're going to be talking about a lot here. Yeah, we, we've been accused of reminiscing too much about the 80s. So we're going to move forward a decade and reminisce about the 90s now. <laughs> so, yeah, so, you know, we're going we're gonna to modernize and talk about the 90s because that's, you know, a, a period of great it's, modernization. It's at least an era that our millennial listeners will relate to because it's, it's, it'll be like their, it's their they 80s, right? Born? It's what they grew up in, yeah. Um, <laughs> So yes, yeah, so we're going to talk about reverse engineering, uh, a couple uh, different pieces of software, video games, Final Fantasy VIII and Diablo, both uh, creatures of the 90s. Uh, but I think before we get into that topic, we need to lay a little bit of groundwork on why we're talking about this and, and what the sort of technological background is. We're going to try not to get too deep into the tech, uh, but we do need to talk about it enough that we can explore the topic. So really what we're talking about today is source code. Yep. Kirk, yeah. what's source code? So what is source code? Source code is the code that you use when you write things. It's, yeah, it's what you write. It's the human readable code, right? Yeah. So when you buy a video game, you get machine code or object, object code, code, which is compiled. Maybe it's been linked. Maybe it hasn't. Um, you know, There's runtime linking and things like that. Uh, those of you who are tech savvy, I am going to simplify this greatly, so please don't write me and scream and, well, actually this. We are simplifying on purpose to, yeah. so this doesn't take six hours to explain. Yeah, most, the way I always think about a source code is if you ever take basic computer programming, you know, like computer programming 101 in college, you're going to be writing source code. Yeah, it's the code people sit down and produce. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, it's it's in theory human readable except for Perl, which is not readable by anybody. <laughs> oh, come on, let's talk Lisp if you want to talk about code that's well, not yeah, readable by that. anybody. And then there's COBOL, which is on the other extreme. It's way too readable <laughs> to the point of being useless. Uh, so the source code is what you know your computer programmers sit down and actually type out on a keyboard to tell the computer what they want it to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is copyright in source code. It's considered, for reasons I don't fully understand, a literary work. Mm-hmm. I guess, in a way, the source code tells a story of sorts. Yeah, it's, I mean, basically, it's history, as they said. Is there's ways to do it. It's literary because of the fact that you choose what terms you use, how you use yeah. these. I think a lot of the reason it came in, and I think one of the things to also keep in mind, is that source code today is fairly different than it was in the 90s It is. We don't well. write it the same way. Like in the 90s, you would open up an editor, like edit.com. Now, yeah. that, that's not a website. That's like a program on MS-DOS. <laughs> and you, you would just type in code, yeah. and then you would feed it to an interpreter or a compiler to do stuff with it. Uh, side note, this is still how I write. I write code on yeah. Linux. I use VI, and I open up a VI editor, and I just write code, and I write websites. Nowadays, it's much more common to have an integrated development environment of some kind that, that writes a lot of the drudgery for you so you don't have to do all the basic overhead stuff yeah, you have it that do every stuff. program has to have. Yeah, you have it do stuff and it kind of dodges the need in many respects to write source code. There's arguably still source code there. It's being written oh, in the background. Is, yeah. You can edit it. You know, stuff like that. But people don't really use it in the same way you did back then. And again, this is one of those where I think for time period wise, you know, for, for people that are like our age, you know, we all learn on, you know, Apple IIEs, mm-hmm. you know, in elementary school, you learn to write basic, which is source code. Yeah. You know, as a very particular form of source code. I'm not sure anybody uses basic anymore. I'm not sure schools use basic anymore, partially because of the fact that it just doesn't make any sense anymore. No, it's nowadays. It's too clunky. Yeah. And you'll, I mean, kids learn to start coding on, um, oh gosh, what's it called? Um, there's a website, and I'm blanking on the name, but my kids all went on to it to learn to do basic code. It's like a graphic interface. You can drag and drop loops and sound clips and whatnot. Yeah. It sounds like Switch, but that's not it. I can't think of what it is. Yeah, I know what you mean. Um, it's, I can't think of it either. I can picture the icon for I it. Know, I, can't, <laughs> I can't think of what it's called. This is great radio. Um, no, but so, but you know, you learn to code that way, and then you move on to these more advanced uh, IDEs, where even like for a video game, you're going to probably use Unity or Game Maker or Game Salad or some kind of uh, you know off-the-shelf commercial 
wonderful product that provides the physics engine for you, it provides the, the structure and framework and all, all the things you need. The main thing you have to get is the asset files. You've got to provide the models, the art, the skins, the sound, yeah. uh, you know, the, the story elements, the narrative elements. And then there's some coding involved to make sure it works the way that you want. But you don't have to go figure out if I want to you know, pan the camera around from left to right, what's the transformation matrix you need to apply and which, you know, where do I put the signs and cosines to move yeah. all the pixels? It does that all for you. The other thing with it is, and I think to keep in mind, is when we think about source code, and again, I think this is something for like our generation of programming. I mean, Ben, I've did a lot of programming. I learned programming, you Way know, in, through you know elementary school into college. I took a few, you know, programming classes in college. I remember when I took programming the first time, like my father commented, and he's like, why would you want to take that class? Because that's like, it's so boring and you can't do anything. And that was because my dad took programming when he was in college. It was, it was a, punch cards. Yeah, when, when, when our parents were in college, programming was the annoying class in business school. There was yeah. no computer. It wasn't in the math department. It was a business class. Yeah, and it's, you know, that kind of thing. And, and he was like, you know, why do you want to do punch cards? Like, you, it takes forever. You know, this is a boring thing unless you're going to do it as a career. We were at least writing source code. And I remember when I was a, a senior, I took a big class. and It was a brand new class, which was writing in HTML, this new language Ooh. for the internet. You know, and so that... Nobody uses HTML anymore. It's too clunky. Well, yeah, I mean, you know? yeah, you have other things. You design pages using IDEs, and it generates HTML for you. For yeah, it generates all the HTML for you. And so, again, I think part of the thing to keep in mind about this is this is really like when we're talking about source code. For those of you who may not be in the computer world, who may not be, you know, sort of all source code as we're talking about it is really going in and typing the list of instructions in a human interpretable form of what yep. the machine's going to do. You know, if you hear the phrase, you know, if then statements, you know, sort of things like that. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of those types for of Yeah, a lot of modern programming doesn't necessarily involve programming in source code. Yeah, you'll do you'll do at least some of that, but with games especially, you're going to do a lot of your design in, uh, like I said, a game a game design engine. Yeah. that will handle all the nitty gritty for you, so you can really focus on the code elements that you have to provide, being implementing the specific game mechanics you want for your game, rather than having to to recode the basic yeah. I/O functions and all that kind of stuff. And this is part of the reason why games are so much more sophisticated today. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, back you know in our day. You you know, I mean, Asteroids was sophisticated. Hey, it's a yeah. triangle and it shoots yeah, back dots. then you had to write an assembler, too. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm pretty sure Hearthstone is coded in Unity, which is the same. I mean, I've got Unity in my desktop at home. I can code in it, too. So. Yeah, and so, again, I think that's the thing to sort of keep in mind. That's what we've got. The real key thing about this, and I think the thing to keep in mind about source code, is you drafted all the source code, you had to save it, you had to store it, but this source code never actually went to a consumer. It was what you generated, it was what you wrote, and then it got compiled, and the, compi- the compiled code is what everybody cared about. That's how it actually ran. And that's really important because the, the source code uh, is, is you telling the computer what you want it to do, but each computer processor has its own different instruction set, and any given line of source code that you write is going to, it has to be turned into basically one long, you know, in, back in the day, 16 or 32-bit number that could be fed to the processor and would tell it which micro, you know, gates to open uh, on the chip to yep. let the electrons flow from place to place to move data around registers and stuff like that. So, you know, each processor has its own instruction set and you would have to compile the code to run natively on each computer you wanted to use. Now, for Windows, this was pretty easy. They all ran on IBM-compatible, uh, you know, x86 chips. Yep. So, if you compiled it for the 386, it should run on the 486 and the Pentium and everything else. But that's also in some respects what Windows did. Yeah, that's what if Windows you, did for If you for wrote it. something for Windows, you know, and you compiled it for Windows, it ran on Windows regardless of what Windows was running on. But you couldn't take the same binary, we call it, the binary file, will not run on Linux, will not run on Apple. You have to compile it for each individual platform. So you'd have one set of source code. Sometimes the source code has special considerations for each platform based on different I.O., you know, yeah. if you're on a Nintendo Switch, the C controls are different. C plus, or for yeah. example, of sort of different... Well, and just the input devices too, right? So if I'm yeah. writing code for a Nintendo Switch, I've got to map, you know, the controls differently than a, a PC where I've got a keyboard and mouse. But yeah. other than those kinds of things, and, and you know, some platforms specific uh, variances the core source code is generally going to be the same and then you compile for each platform and the compilers existed for each language into each platform Yep. So if you wrote something in, you know, C, for example, you could compile it into Windows. You could also compile it into Apple. Mm-hmm. What your code commands were would basically work the same way on both machines. Certain specificities between how the machines worked, obviously, being yep. a, a potential issue. But basically, you didn't have to write 
Apple code, you didn't have to write Windows code. You wrote a single form in a source code file, yep. and then you compiled it into whatever you needed to do. And I think this was true of platforms as well. I think pretty much everything had that type of a format. Yeah, I think, uh, like the Atari and Nintendo back in the day, I think they had to code in assembly, which is a really low-level, difficult-to-understand language. But the, the bottom line of all this is that once you have the code, you have a copyright in the code. Yeah. And you don't have to give it to the end user. Uh, in fact, you don't want to, because once they know what the code is, they can just build it themselves, yeah. and they don't they don't need you anymore. You also generally didn't want to because then they'd have to compile it. Yeah, which is technically <laughs> difficult. Yeah. Um, so you have a copyright in the code, but you know, back in the 90s, the world was very different in terms of how the gaming industry worked. We, we had the internet, but most people weren't on it. And the idea, you know, those of you who are old enough may remember this, it used to be that you actually bought a physical thing that yeah. had the game on it. You would go to software, etc. <laughs> <laughs> or, or some other store at the mall. I just finished watching Stranger Things 3, so the malls are freshly on my mind. You'd go buy a physical box yeah. that had a disc in it, or sometimes 30 discs for a giant game, and go home and spend two and a half hours flipping discs and installing them to get the game transferred from that under your hard drive. But once it was installed, that was it. Yeah. There well, was, a lot of times you had to have the CD in the drive to run it for various yeah. copy protection type things. But yeah, once it was on your hard drive, it was on your hard drive. You didn't really need the discs anymore, so to speak. You kept them as a backup. And there was no going onto the internet to make sure your version was valid. Like yeah. if, if you had a copy, that was usually evidence that you paid for it. How else would you yeah. get it? And I mean, let's also go back, you know, thinking about like, you know, consoles again, like console game systems. In there, you didn't even have to deal with the discs and installing it. You just physically took a cartridge and plugged it in and it yeah. was ready to go. But the whole industry, it was kind of like the music industry, was based on physical media. I mean, they were selling games, but what they were really selling was copies on disc that you paid a bunch of money for. Uh, And so once the game was pressed to the disc and the discs were shipped out to the retail stores, you really didn't need this horse code. You weren't going to do anything else with it. Uh, There was no updating. Yeah, some games have a patch for critical bugs. It was was pretty unusual. Most people didn't know how to get them. Um, There's no way to find out about them. And if you were plugged into the internet in the early 90s, maybe you knew how to find a patch off Usenet or every once in a while you'd find some hacker who fixed a problem on his own and distributed his own patch. But for the most part, once the game was pressed and the master was done, that was it. And there also, in many respects, weren't additions to games. Like, you know, if you play modern games nowadays, you know, the inclusion of new maps, new vehicles, new skins, you know, that's common. Like, it's done all the time. DLC. That's the micropayments, you know, that that are common in conjunction things. You know, back then, when you got the game, that was the game. And occasionally they do like, oh, we're going to release an update that's going to add another 50 levels and a new class. Yeah. You know, but that was basically another game. You physically went down, got the disc for that, yeah, and then you the installed it, build this expansion disc and stuff like that. So there were expansions and stuff like that. But, the, you know, the whole concept of a game, a game was much more self-contained than it is nowadays. I mean, to think about it is to, you know, what it would be. It would be like today, you know, getting on Steam, getting a copy of a game, and then never connecting to Steam again. Yeah. It's, that it's was an what alien the game concept, was. isn't it? Yeah, and, it's, and you look at it and you're like, wait, how would I do that? And the answer is, well, that was what you used to do. Barbaric as this sounds, there were, <laughs> there were consequences for it. One of which is that um, you know, code preservation strategies in the 1990s were, shall we say, less robust than they are yeah. now. And part of it to keep in mind with this is the concept of backups. And I think this is something to think about. Anybody who has, like, iCloud, you know, in conjunction with your phone or anything like that, all of your photos are copied to iCloud. Automatically, it's all backed up for you. It's all kept in the cloud. And the odds of that being deleted unintentionally are probably close to zero. Yeah, the, the idea that you could lose all copies of anything that you have on your computer forever yeah. is almost a foreign concept now. But back in the 90s, you know, a, a game dev shop may only have one or two, three coders. And uh, unless it was relatively sophisticated, you mostly left them alone to write their code. Uh, they would have a copy of what they're working on on their computer. They kind of manually share it back and forth. But most, uh, you know, most, I mean, I worked in, in software at the time. And, you know, sophisticated commercial enterprise would have some code repositories, uh, but for smaller shops, often not. And the problem with this is once the game ships and you don't need the code anymore, uh, you know, you just delete it. Yeah, well, you can delete it, but it's, you know, and even the case of caging backups, even a company that was very diligent about making backups and being worried about stuff, you're going to have it probably on four to five pieces of hardware. Yeah. You know, it's not stored on the internet. It's not stored on something where it, it can't go away. It's on these physical pieces of hardware. And the thing about it was is then when hardware changed, if you upgraded your computers, if you forgot to take something off a hard drive, that hard drive got recycled. Yeah, it's gone. It's gone. And even to the extent you had like tape backups and sort of the formal backups that a lot of people think of in conjunction with these things, 
those occasionally got overwritten because they were unnecessary. You know, there's famous stories in history about stuff like this. I mean, the, the most famous one, and it's appropriate for our timing as to what this is, is why our moon landing footage is so bad. Yes, it's the 50th anniversary. It is the 50th anniversary. Why is our footage so bad? Well, because when they did the original TV broadcast, they just filmed the TV because the, the standards were incompatible for the video that was being generated on the moon, which has been overwritten. Yeah, it's gone. We don't have the nice-looking version from, you know, the original moon landing because we inadvertently overwrote the tapes. There was one copy. You know, now you look at it and you say, you know, what's coming in from our, you know, space probes today, we couldn't inadvertently overwrite it. It's all sorts of places yeah. as soon as it's received. It's all over NASA's website and, and 50 million people have a copy on their computer somewhere, yeah. right? It's everywhere. Yeah, that kind of thing sort of way. So again, I think the, the, the one thing you really got to keep in mind, and it's for younger listeners, that it may very well be a truly foreign concept. Yeah. Is we the did an fact episode that, on this. The internet never forgets. Yeah, the internet never forgets. We have the example that there can be very few copies of this. And it was an issue for you as, a, as an individual. We're going to start talking here about some of the games and we're going to talk about specifically Diablo. Um, I'm going to use my own example of Diablo. I had the original copy of Diablo. Um, it was a game I played a huge amount. I had it with my laptop. For those of you who may know my history, I had a serial arsonist burn down my apartment um, <laughs> when I was a, a summer associate laugh, at one point in time. It was It's funny now. Um, they stole my computer and they stole my Diablo CD. The problem with that is that since they stole the Diablo CD, I had to physically have the CD to play the game. This is how copy protection that worked That was how back copy protection day. worked. And so one of the big issues that I had, I had to go out and buy a second copy of the CD so that I could play a game I owned. Because there was no other way to prove that I owned it. Even though it was installed on a hard drive on another machine, which you were allowed to do, I couldn't physically play it because I didn't have the physical CD. This in turn led to people releasing cracks because setting aside the possibility of losing the CD was just a pain in the butt. Just change yeah. CDs all the time. And plus, if one went bad, so you know, one of the first things you do with a game is go online and find a crack that would take away the CD requirement just so you wouldn't have to constantly switch yeah. discs around. And that's early online. But I mean, now we're always saying, hey, we can get online, we can get this kind of stuff. In early days of this, that there was, it was copy protection for a reason. You couldn't defeat it in many mm-hmm. respects. You had to have something to, to get around it. Well, obviously, we don't we don't save code this way now. Yeah. We have GitHub and cloud storage, and and, and uh, we're going to talk about uh, a couple of uh, game companies that lost some source code. We're going to talk about Final Fantasy VIII. Um, and, and Diablo. Then, <laughs> yeah, and, and Diablo, but it's, it's notable that I was a coder, including working on games, MUDs, not like graphic games, like online games, back in the 90s, and we used version control back then. So I, I do find it a little odd that, that me and my, my stupid friends writing MUDs in the 90s, which were free-to-play online games uh, with you know a couple dozen users, we used CVS, that's not the pharmacy, that's concurrent versioning system. Uh, we used Subversion. We had these tools, and we used them to keep track of our code, yet we have giant studios like Square and Sony that apparently didn't. Yeah, I just it's so it's so bizarre. Well, and some of it probably in conjunction with this, and I think it's it makes sense. Is again to the point you pointed out. Once these CDs were pressed, unless you were going to write an expansion. You didn't need the source code anymore. Maybe that's a difference because the mud was evergreen. It was more like a Warcraft or an Ultima Online where we're constantly making changes. We're constantly adding features, tweaking things. And every time we do, we got to rebuild it and redistribute it yeah. and, and update the server. So, but anyways, let's talk about Final Fantasy VIII. It's, it's, I've actually honestly never played it. Uh, I played Final Fantasy One, <laughs> and uh, I think I played ten, maybe? I don't remember. I never really played the Final Fantasy series. I remember Final Fantasy VIII, though, and like it was a huge deal. I remember deal it being a big deal. Seven and eight, like both, yeah. So, at eight received almost universal acclaim, considered one of the best RPGs ever made. Uh, and last year, I think it was, they announced that ports of Final Fantasy VII, 9, 10, and 12 were coming to the Nintendo Switch and the Xbox One, but the beloved 8 was mysteriously absent from the list. And there's a lot of speculation about why this is, and as best as the internets can figure, basically, the source code was lost to 8 for some reason. Yep. Uh, they, uh, In fact, uh, the theory is that they lost the source code to Final Fantasy 8 before it was even ported to the PC, which is also why the PC version of 8 is famously not nearly as high quality as uh, the the original uh, PlayStation 1 version. Uh, and, and it's simply because they didn't have good uh, source code repository and versioning control in place at the time. Again, I, f- I find that odd since I did and yeah. <laughs> I wasn't writing anything that was worth any money. Uh, but but that's the story. Um, and, and I think it's worth noting when you talk about the fact that the source code is missing, you can probably walk down to stores and you can probably buy a CD for the PlayStation 1 
which has the object codes you can play Final Fantasy VIII. If you have a PlayStation 1, you can get a copy yeah. of the game. It's not that the copies of the game don't exist. Yeah, it's the, the game the exists. The underlying code doesn't exist. But we, there's two versions that are out there that you can get. You can get the version that's already been compiled to run on a PlayStation 1, which you know probably works on a PlayStation 2. I don't know how far back the backward compatibility goes. We'll talk about that in a little bit, too. And there's a different version for the PC that was based on an earlier beta version for the PS1. So it's a little bit different and not, not quite as robust. But both neither one of those will run on Nintendo Switch. Neither one of those will run on an Xbox yeah. One. And that's because they're not backward compatible. They're not designed to yeah. handle those kind of things. The, the really. Xbox has a different microchip and a different instruction set, and so the instructions that would work on a PS1 won't work on yeah. a Nintendo and different won't work on an Xbox. This is why you need the source code. Yeah. So you can recompile it for the Xbox One using the Xbox One compiler. But since the source code is lost, porting the game to these other platforms is not that simple. Yeah, and you can't reverse engineer a compiler. I think that's an important thing to keep in mind is that a compiler can't run in reverse. Yeah, it, it can't. It can generate the, you know, you can. it can generate some things. There are decompilers yep. that will tell you what the instruction set is but um, it doesn't it won't get you back to the original source code the process of doing that normally requires you to, to decompile the instruction set to see the assembly code and then from there try and figure out what they were doing and it takes thousands upon thousands upon thousands of effort hours of effort honestly I think it would probably be faster just to rewrite the thing from scratch yeah so that's how reverse engineering works. Um, you know, so it, it, is, it is possible to reverse engineer the game, um, but uh, it's, it's not easy. Yep. And what and, do you mean by reverse engineering? Let's, just, let's get to that sort of quickly. Is what does the term reverse engineering really mean? Yeah, so, so here what we're talking about is using the information we do have about the game. So in this case, the binary and whatever other data was distributed with the, the compiled copies that are out there without the source code to try and figure out what the source code is or find source code that will produce the same game again so we can then recompile that source code in a different platform yep. and that's how we're going to port basically make a Nintendo Switch version of a game written just for the PS1 you know 20 years ago yep. and I think the key thing to keep in mind about this is we have the game so we know what the game looks like yeah. we know how it we plays know it's we know everything work. about it and really there's, so there's two ways you can do this right one is since I know what the game looks like and how it works I can just sit down with a blank compiler and just rewrite the game again yep. you know do, you know, some things you may lose do you know all the formulas behind the scenes for how things are calculated you know if, if you don't have all that stuff, you may need to decompile and try and see if you can figure out the math underneath the hood. Uh, but for a lot of games, we have a really good idea of what those formulas are. They've been played and tested exhaustively. And you can usually use, you know, basic logic reason and, and discrete math to figure that out. So you can rewrite it from scratch, which takes a lot of work. You can decompile it and then try and reproduce source code, which takes a lot of work. Um, the, but the, either way, there's no simple way to get at this. Yep. Yeah, and that's, I think, the key about it is the idea behind reverse engineering is basically saying, I have this end product. From the end product, I can figure out somewhat how it's made. Mm -hmm. And particularly when you talk about computer programming, because software is software, it's not like I'm reverse engineering a golf ball. I have to figure out how you, you know, like, manufactured the particular top of it. I know what composition it is, but how did you make it that way? How did you do what you yeah. needed to do? In software, ultimately, it, it jumps down to opening certain gates, moving certain things between zeros and ones and stuff like that. There, there in some sense, is only a certain certain number of ways to do things. Now, yes, there are multiple ways of doing it. You know, that's there's a lot of discussion about the idea of, you know, how well done is a program, how narrow it was. That was a big issue back in the day. You know, hey, was your code, if your code was, you know, faster and more streamlined, it worked better than if mm -hmm. it wasn't. Um, and that was your source code, just sheer number of lines. So you could do the same thing three different ways. One way was more efficient than the other one. A lot were. of that was done by the compiler. So you just write your source code in a way that's easy for a human to read, and the compiler does the work yep. of finding the inefficiencies and then redoing it so that once it's ready for the machine to execute, yep. it's faster. And again, that's machine-specific. And again, that's the kind of thing we got to keep in mind with this is we have this compiled code for a PS1. We know how a PS1 works, but we don't necessarily know the choice a compiler made from the source code yeah. to the object code that was that how to make it run efficiently. The source code could have been written in a couple of different ways and resulted in the end, but those couple of different ways may interact with different things if we don't know what else is going on. We should also point out that the asset files that, that is, that's what we think of as the game, the art, the graphics, the sound, those things are usually separate from the source code. The source code pulls those things in and uses them and then gives them to the 
hardware to display on the screen or play the audio. But the source code is more the instructions for how the game works. Yeah. And the the art files are usually in a standard format, like a 3D model file, or uh, you know the skins may just be uh, GIFs or JPEGs or PNGs. Uh, so those things are usually stored in a standard format of some kind, and then they're just used as assets by the software to to show yep. to the user. So, so those so assets are relatively easy to those obtain. are usually easier to get at. I think uh, we're going to talk about Diablo in a second. Blizzard had their own special archive format, but they still use it, so we can yeah. still we know how to access those and pull those assets out. So Final Fantasy VIII, the theory is it was not ported because the code was lost and reverse engineering it uh, was going to be tricky and difficult. Um, and so, and I, I think they finally figured out a way to reverse engineer that. But we want to focus uh, in this episode on uh, Diablo, uh, which has a really interesting reverse engineering story. So for those of you <laughs> who were, going were, back in time were, were not born in 1996, this game was a huge, huge hit for Blizzard. It wasn't yes. actually originally their title. Somebody else was working on it as a turn-based RPG, pitched it to Blizzard, and Blizzard said, nah, but this would work great as, an, as a real-time yeah. strategy game, uh, coming off the success of the original Warcraft, or Orcs versus Humans. Yep. So this game sold uh, 2.5 million copies. It was, I think, probably one of the first... Um, you know, general audience video games that people who didn't play nerdy RPG dungeon crawl games could play this because you didn't have to use a keyboard. You could do the entire yeah. game just using the mouse. And that was really Diablo's major, major thing is the fact that this is primarily a mouse. You had some a few keyboard controls and like some keyboard hotkeys and stuff like that. You didn't have to. But it was a game that was very accessible. A lot of the problems you used to bump into in conjunction with games is learning the controls, which in some senses is why consoles were popular because the yeah, controls were simpler. You know, simpler. What RPGs in particular are notorious for one of their selling aspects is their complexity. We all like yeah. to dig or sink our teeth into a nice, complex RPG-type game. Uh, but... Diablo was in a lot of ways the opposite of that. There's only three classes, not sixty. You know, yeah. Uh, and and the, you know, it's it's a basic dungeon crawl. Want to attack this thing? Click here. Yeah, and there's but there's also like a huge number of weapons of different types. And you, swords had advantages, shields had advantages. Things that you had to hold in two hands versus one hand. You know, so you could swap out what you were doing. And definitely when you played the game, you had to occasionally do that. It's a lot of what you use yep. the keyboard for. Um, but it was one of those things where you know it had an enormous amount of complexity. The other thing Diablo introduced, and it's something I don't think enough people talk about, but I think it is valuable. To with Diablo was sort of the concept of randomized weapons and randomized loot drops. That's the other thing. The dungeons were RNG'd and the drops were RNG'd. And before that, if you were like the Final Fantasy One, the treasure chest in the ice volcano uh, has the same amount of money in it every time you play. And it's in the same place. It's, it's in the same place. It's just hard coded. Yeah. And and that's the thing. In Diablo it wasn't. There was a lot of randomization. So like you could kill a you know particular monster, a tougher monster would generally have a better thing, but you may, you know, have a class that you don't not want to use an offhand weapon. You always want to use a bow and you get a, an offhand weapon. And again, we look at this now and we're like, but wait, Duh. that's the way every video that's game how every works. Game works. Yeah. It didn't it, used to be. It does. It didn't used to be. Games this used was, to be very tightly scripted yeah. as to how these things were were played out. And that's also where a lot of times you know, you could get guides that said, here's how you beat this, because by the way, you know, you won't trigger this monster until you cross this line, and yep. this is how they come at you, because this is what they did. In Diablo, the maze was random. You know, you could play the exact same dungeon five times, and it wouldn't look anything like itself. And so what it also made is it made the ability to go back and replay sections of it, because everything was different. I also just want to mention quick, and again, for, I think most people are probably going to know this, a dungeon crawl is basically an event where you're going to, you're going to have something that's usually a town or something along those lines, which is kind of your safe zone, you you join the game and you put your avatar in danger by entering a dungeon. Yep. And there's generally a reason you go into the dungeon. There's something in particular you're looking for, but you don't know where it is or how long it's going to take you to get there. This is a time-honored RPG model. Like the yep. Wizardry series from the 90s has all it's had a similar structure. It's Dungeons and Dragons. Structure. It's yeah. all based on Dungeons and Dragons. I mean, in many respects, the original Dungeons and Dragons. And it's, in some sense, like, a dungeon crawl is kind of an odd concept, but it's when you think about it. And the whole idea is we get all these adventurers together in the local tavern and then we go into a cave and investigate yeah. to go find something. And that's what we do over and over and over and over yeah. and over again. The, the, the story is a, a thin <laughs> veneer to, <Yeah. laughs> to sustain a, a hack and slash adventure. It's yeah. an adventure style uh, action combat game where instead of stopping, you know, it's not like D&D where you'd stop and, and consider your turn. Like, what am I going to do? I have infinite time to decide what my tactics are going to be in this one fight. It's can you click on 
in the right place fast enough to win, and have you deployed your weapons and armor properly? Yeah, because that was a lot of times it was, you know, in things like when you played Diablo, was you have to shoot at guys, you also have to run away from them, because, like, you may have a yeah. bow, you, it means you don't have a shield, you don't have a lot of armor, you need to run away. If Even if you were carrying a shield, like heavy armor and stuff like that, you couldn't face mobs. You were trying to separate guys out. That was part of the gameplay. And that was when you clicked, like, you'd click to attack a monster, you could also click to move to a particular position, you could click to interact with something. The one downside of, of Diablo is occasionally, like, you'd click and close the door instead of running through it, you know, and stuff yeah. like that, because you were trying to click fast. Well, Diablo has an interesting story, because like Final Fantasy VIII, the source code was lost at some point. As far as um, we know. As far as we know, or that supposedly was lost. That's what I've read on the internets, which we all know is never wrong. <laughs> um, but th- this has an important consequence, because... Um, if you want to replay Diablo now, even on Windows, which is what it was written for, it was yeah, originally Diablo's Windows was only written release. for Windows. Uh, it doesn't work anymore. Yeah, it was also one of the first pu- pu- true PC games. Yeah, it wasn't written for a console. And I remember that like, when it came out, it, that, I think that's part of the reason it was so popular because it was a PC game. Like there was a lot of outcry about getting it on consoles. They did release a console version eventually, but the yeah, console version is considered version, to be less superior. Yeah, and part of the reason is because it doesn't have the mouse control. Like, well, and the, the hardware too. The PS One hardware wasn't as good as PC hardware at the time. We should talk about yeah. so blast from the past. Here's the hardware requirements for Diablo. <laughs> In addition to having to have your Windows ninety five yep. uh, system requirements, Windows ninety five or NT four point one. Lord help you if you're running NT. <laughs> uh, so here's your system requirements: Pentium processor. 60 megahertz. <laughs> yeah. That's megahertz, guys? I'm pretty sure a free watch that you can get from the bank has a 60 <laughs> megahertz processor. And then uh, 8 megabytes of RAM. That's yep. not gigabytes, megabytes of RAM. Yep. Yeah, I think, I think I've think i got multiple gigabytes of RAM just in like the, the video sub-processor on my graphics card. Yep. Uh, Double-speed CD-ROM, that yep. was a thing. I uh, mean, I, I had a 16-speed CD-ROM when they stopped making CD-ROM, yeah. so to give you the idea of the speed. And then this is a concept we don't have anymore. Windows 95-compatible sound card and mouse. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's something that worked on Windows 95. Yeah. We didn't have USB at the time. You, yeah. you had to plug your mouse into the serial port, and it had to have a driver for Windows. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fun stuff. Uh, and then your SVGA video card, DirectX compatible. So, um, so Diablo relied on this thing called DirectX, yep. which we should say is the way it was. It's a, and we still have it. Uh, it's it's the name from Microsoft's application programming interface. How that if you as the programmer want to tell a Windows machine, I want to play this song at this time, or I want to display these graphics at this time. This is how you tell them how to do it. And this is important. And it was a, actually a major innovation for Windows ninety five because before that. Um, Every piece of software uh, had to have a compatible device driver. So if I had a sound card plugged in, there had to be a device driver that could translate the instructions, play this song, into whatever the hardware on the sound card had to cause the you know the speaker to vibrate and yeah. emit the appropriate sound. And a lot of times when you set the game up, you had to go through and select what sound card oh, you had. Oh, you had to select the, inter- the, the interrupt channel that would cause the sound card to tell the operating system, hey, my turn, I need to control something now. Yep. You had to, I mean, I remember setting IRQ settings and all these things. It was a nightmare getting something to work. Um, and, and we had a lot of compatibility problems where getting a PC game just to run could sometimes be a multiple-day effort. Uh, Windows 95 cleaned that up by providing DirectX, which was one uniform interface uh, that everything used. So if you're going to have a Windows 95-compatible sound card, it had to be able to take instructions from DirectX. So DirectX was basically this middle layer that let developers focus on game development and less on hardware compatibility and had Windows do more of the work of translating what the developer wants the game to do into telling the hardware how to do it. And I think there's a, a key thing to keep in mind in conjunction with this is that this was something Windows did, and it's part of the reason why Windows basically could work on so many systems, was because you didn't have to build the hardware to work in with any other particular hardware. You had to build the hardware that would plug into the hardware you know, and stuff like that and be compatible, but you wrote this sort of DirectX software on top of it. Well, I think in many we think of it as an API now. It is an API, yeah. You know, that, that basically said, I can take instructions from DirectX, and this was a really, really new concept. Yeah, I mean, DOS did this for you, but I, I think back in the day, I did never code in DOS, but as I recall, you just had to know to tell DOS, hey, I, I want to use the sound. I want to use the device that's got interrupt channel five. Yeah, and you just had to know what the interrupt channel was that your sound card was programmed to use in DOS. Make sure the sound card's device driver was loaded into RAM. It only had 640k to work with, <laughs> so you really had to be careful. You didn't have huge fat device drivers, or there was enough memory left yeah. to actually run the game. And that's I, I, one of those I joke about, it, and I don't know if anybody remembers doing this, but I definitely it's it's still one of those things that like haunts me in some respects. Is the having to when you get a new computer going and finding all the 
the new the drivers for all of your stuff. Oh yeah, none of that stuff passed automatically. You had to yeah. find it yourself. You had to go and you know, get to websites and go like, okay, you know, here's the patch. You know, where's the patch for my computer? No, it doesn't do it automatically. You have to go find it. You have to remember what your printer is called, which version it is, where it's installed, yep. so it puts it in the right place. It was a nightmare. It was. So I, I said we still have DirectX now, and Diablo was written to use DirectX. So the question that should come up is, well, then why doesn't it work on Windows 10? And the answer is because you know DirectX has changed over time. Hardware has changed. It doesn't work the same way anymore. Uh, and, and for a long time, Microsoft maintained backwards compatibility, meaning yep. that the new versions of DirectX could still had still had the same instructions. That if you wrote a program that went to tell DirectX, hey, I want to play this sound effect, the code to do that was the same. Uh, they they tried really hard to maintain that, but at some point, things had changed so much that it became pointless, right? There's, you can't maintain backwards compatibility for every old hardware driver because, you know, when these, a sound card from 1998, within three years, is out of date. And at some point, it's not worth it for the hardware manufacturer to keep updating the device driver for new versions of DirectX. So when DirectX dropped backwards compatibility, which I think happened with Windows Vista in 2006... At that point, old device drivers on prior versions didn't necessarily work. So uh, to get Diablo to run on a modern machine with DirectX, you know, 10, 11, or 12, is it, you know, old device drivers can't be operated by by that version of DirectX for the most part because the drivers haven't been updated to use the new the new interface. That in turn means that software that's relying on those drivers can't talk to modern hardware. And so it just doesn't work. To give you just a modern example of this, if any of you guys have encountered it, I know I encountered it. Um, I owned a lot of like small games and stuff my kids like to play on my phone. When iOS went to 10, there's a lot of things that, I think it's iOS 10, um, there's a lot of games that don't run now. Like if you click yeah. on the icon, it pops up and says like, this game has not been updated for the recent iOS. Th- that's exactly the same problem. Yeah. You you, know? you have to, sometimes all you have to do to update it is just recompile the game. You've got the source code. Yeah. So you just load up your compiler, you rebuild it, and it, it plugs it into the new interface format, and it's up to date, and you're all yep. set. There's no actual new coding to do. You just have to recompile it. Yep. And but these are free apps that nobody cares. Yeah. And if the developer's not maintaining it, I've got this for my media player at home. There's a remote uh, there's a remote control app for my phone, but the company that makes the media player has stopped maintaining the remote control app. And although it would work fine on an older version of iOS, on the newer version it doesn't. And since they're not rebuilding it, I can't use it anymore. Yeah, and you have no way of rebuilding it because you don't have the source code. Yeah. So from Vista on, it's become increasingly difficult to run older games written for older versions of DirectX unless you've actually got the old hardware with the old Windows operating system, the old version of DirectX, and the old device drivers for the video cards and the sound cards that were used on those machines. But since nobody sells any of that, and even finding some of it online is hard because a lot of the stuff predates you know, the commercial internet, uh, it can be really hard to run these old programs at all. Yep. And that's I think, brings us to where we are. So we basically are looking at it and saying, we have a scenario with Diablo 1, you know, Diablo, so to speak. Yeah. I mean, it's Diablo 1 because there's a 2. Um, where and a 3. This is a, yeah, a 3 <laughs> and a bunch of other ones. This is a game that was good. It was entertaining. People enjoyed it. That basically, we have copies of it which can't run because there's no hardware which can run it. And we lack the version of the software to put it onto a modern machine with a compiler, even though that would potentially take minutes. Yeah, this would be easy to fix if we had the source code. We just yep. take the source code, rewrite it to use the modern DirectX interface, and it should be fine. Yep. But we don't have the source code. We don't have the source code, and again, we also don't have a machine that can really run it. Yeah. Now, even if we did have um, you know, the ability to you know, you know, um, do that, we still have a porting problem, right? I want to run Diablo on Nintendo Switch. Yep. Again, I need the source code. I need to take it over to the Switch and then and then rewrite some of it to, to build to run on Switch and use its hardware. Yep. So without the source code, we're kind of stuck. And Diablo is an interesting case study from a legal perspective because uh, Blizzard did some things that were odd with how they distributed Diablo. I'm not sure they're necessarily odd. I think you can look at them and say they're potentially mistakes. Yeah, mistakes. But I think you can also look at it and say some of it is time period dependent. At yeah. this time period, it didn't matter. Yeah, so... here. The, ultimately, somebody was able to, with with probably a couple hundred hours of effort, but certainly a lot less than what you would normally use to re-engineer something, uh, reverse engineer Diablo. And the source code for Diablo is now available on GitHub in a project called Devolution. And the way they did it is that when they were looking through old original media, Diablo CDs, they found two things that Blizzard had distributed with the game. One is a file called a .sym, S-Y-M. And for those of you who are developers, you'll know what this means. It's the symbol table for the functions and methods. It's how 
you know, when you compile something, it makes a table of all of the tokens, all the names of variables and functions to look for collisions and scoping problems and things like that. This information is, is needed at compile time. It's not really needed at runtime, so there's no reason to distribute it with the binary. The binary doesn't use it. But for some reason, probably inadvertence, the symbol table was distributed. And since the information in it is plain text, well, it's not really, it's not encoded that way, but you can get the plain text out. So with that, that gave, you know, these developers who reverse engineered Diablo a lot of information about the names and the structures of the internal code. And then added to that was a debugging file, also something that you don't need to distribute with the production copy, was was buried in the asset archive that Blizzard distributes with its games. It has the art files and the sound. And the debugging file was basically a list of what they call assertion statements. These are debugging statements you put in code to, to check if certain conditions are true before the code proceeds and then error out if not. And you always take them out before the game releases because you don't want it to, to die if there's an error. You want it to try and proceed if possible. Uh, the, the assertion statements are also plain text, and since most of the lines of code have one, this debugging file basically had sort of a copy of most of the code in it. It's, it's not the code, so to speak. It's things telling you what the yeah. code should or shouldn't it's, be yeah. doing. It's, it's more like saying it's evidence of what the code was and better evidence than if we were just to decompile the binary and get the assembly yeah. instructions. So between the symbol table and this debugging information, uh, a couple of hobbyists, or maybe even just one hobbyist, uh, in a couple of months was able to completely reverse engineer the source code for Diablo, uh, port it to Switch. Uh, maybe it wasn't Switch. Maybe it was uh, just to recompile PC. it for there PC. There was a porting to Switch. Somebody else ported it. Once yeah. he did that, somebody was able to port it to Switch in like two days. Yeah. So, voila, we've got it. And it didn't take thousands and thousands of hours of work. It took a couple hundred. Um, so here's, here's the part that makes is interesting to me and Kirk. Is this legal? No. No, of course not. <laughs> and that's, that's the thing we're going to get into with it, is we went through this whole thing about how this is a huge problem. This is why we spend so much time setting this up. We, this is a problem. We knew that this thing was out there. This is something which is desired, and it was something that effectively, this was the only way to recreate. The problem it is, is the recreation is arguably illegal. Yeah. So... Why is it illegal? Copyright. Copyright. It's, yeah. it's all about copyright infringement. So reverse engineering, writing the code, is illegal. Now, remember, we talked about the, the copyright relates to sort of the specific text of the source code. Mm-hmm. Remember, you talk about these files. These files have variable names in them. Things that, yep. That's the elements of the copyright. We're literally talking about specific elements of the copyright. Well, additionally, to, to do all this, I mean, all, all the stuff that Blizzard distributed on that disk is all copyrighted. Yes. And... Uh, if, if, if you've got a copy of it, you can't just make copies of it and do whatever you want with it unless they've given you permission to do yeah. that. Where do you get your permission to do that? The EULA. The, EULA. the license agreement, yeah. which almost certainly says, do not reverse engineer our code. Yeah, and so that's the thing. We have, we have a copyright in the source code. We also have a copyright in the .sym file, you know, and these other, the SIM files and other files associated with it. Those are copyrighted too. And again, are also potentially subject to the EULA I mean, yes. in conjunction with it. Now, we do have the fact that these two files sort of shouldn't have also been distributed. That's so what makes a technical this, solution here that yeah. should have been in place. That's what makes this weird, is these files probably were not meant to be distributed. Um, and they, little, they serve basically no purpose in a commercial distribution other than to do something like this. Yeah. Uh, so we don't, unfortunately, I couldn't find a copy of the Diablo EULA because I would not be completely surprised if in 1996 they didn't think to put a no reverse engineering clause in, although Battle.net had one, so maybe yeah, they did. Yeah, my suspect is they probably did because we're around, a lot of no reverse engineering clauses came into place because of the DMCA and we're around Yeah, we're about time. to get to that, yeah. So. Now, there, there were court cases on reverse engineering as a fair use, but they're pretty confined. Uh, the court cases tend to favor the reverse engineerer and find a fair use uh, if you're reverse engineering software, but with some important caveats. One, you have to have lawfully acquired the copy that you're working with. Yep. So if you're pirating a copy and reverse engineering it, it does not excuse your pirating. <laughs> yep. Uh, the problem is the only way to lawfully get a copy of Diablo is to get a license. Yeah. And so you're subject to the license. And so the license probably says, don't do that. Yeah. So the only way that you can do this lawfully is to get a license that says you can't do this. Yeah. But, or have something out of it. Now, one way to lawfully do this, to keep in mind, is you are Blizzard. Yeah. They can course. obviously yeah, do they this because they, they own it. Yeah. <laughs> 
another option you could think about maybe is um, a, a secondhand sale. If somebody yeah. else accepts the EULA and then sells you the physical disc. Now you've acquired a copy. If it made any copies, yep. you didn't do anything wrong. The other person distributed to the public. Although arguably the EULA governs, governs how you can resell and how you yeah. can purchase. So, but the EULA may say that. that the transfer is invalid. And, and, then, and even so you've got a copy. That doesn't necessarily mean you have the right to make further copies. And when you're reverse engineering it, you know, you're going to have to make a copy of the game onto your computer. That's making a copy. You can't do that unless they say you can. So, you know, unless you accept the EULA, you still don't have that right. So we're, we're in a catch-22 where the requirement to reverse engineer lawfully uh, requires you to accept a EULA that says you can't do it. So, yep. you know, there's that problem uh, right, right out the gate. Uh, another reason that you... Uh, another limitation to think about is interoperability. Yep. You can't reverse engineer just for any reason you want. And the main reason that they do allow reverse engineering as a fair use is specifically for purposes of interoperability. Well, this is the good news because that's exactly what we're doing here. Yeah. Right? We want to use old software on new hardware or on a different platform. The problem with it is we're not actually using the old software. We're using completely new software. We're making a derivative work, aren't yeah. we? Yeah. And then we talked about the DMCA plays into this too. Uh, the DMCA is the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. We won't get into a long, detailed discussion of what that is. But it, it essentially attempts to codify some of these uh, basic rules we just talked about. And it specifically says, you know, you have to lawfully have the right to use the copy uh, and that you can reverse engineer, or rather it says nothing in the DMCA prevents you from reverse engineering for the sole purpose of identifying and analyzing the elements of the program necessary to achieve interoperability of an independently created computer program with other programs. Well, that's what we're doing. We want it to work with DirectX. We want it to work with the Nintendo Switch operating system. Yep. So the DMCA, I think here, you know, by itself wouldn't necessarily cut the off, but you've still got this this chicken and egg problem you've still got the with, issue. with I, I have to violate the EULA to, to do something I'm otherwise allowed to do. And these limitations in EULAs are enforceable. That's why they're uniformly present. Yep. Yeah, and again, it's, I think the key thing to keep in mind about this, what we're saying is it's you can lawfully do this unless you're told you can't lawfully do this. And by the way, the only way to get a copy of it to lawfully do it with is, is to, to violate them. <laughs> it's, it's to get the agreement that says you're not going to do it. So you, you really have this kind of scenario. And that's again, that's why these are in these EULAs. That's why it appears this way is exactly that scenario. So uh, let's assume this is not a fair use, or if it is, uh, it's nevertheless prohibited by the EULA. So it's either a copyright infringement or a breach of contract, one and, of the and two. And technically, the breach of contract violation is going to be enforced by copyright, so it's a copyright yeah. violation both yeah. ways. The breach of contract means you violated a condition, you have no license, so it's also a copyright, copyright violation. Um, does Blizzard care? Apparently not. Apparently not. It's still on GitHub right now. It's been there for a while. Uh, I just checked this morning before I came in. You can go to GitHub and find the Devolution project. You can download it. You can build Diablo. You can run it. Um, the DMCA also says that if somebody else has your copyrighted stuff on their website, you can make them take it down. Yeah. And they apparently haven't done that because yep. it's still there. So this is this is interesting. Why, Kirk, why do you think? Why do you think this has just been ignored? I think some of it, and just this is what we sort of got into, we've talked about it in copyright, is... Why would anybody bother? And yeah, what's what's the commercial value of this? Yeah, there, there's you know there's argument to a commercial value. We are talking about a game that was huge in 1996, which was unquestionably an incredibly valuable copyright in 1996. We're talking about 25 years later, or close to 25 years later. But there's already been a Diablo two and, and Diablo three and, and a port to mobile and what is it Infinity or whatever the current one is? I yeah. Can't <laughs> So you know the commercial value of this of this is is probably nil. I mean, is Blizzard gonna gonna sell these? I mean, they're not now. Uh, I guess they couldn't because they couldn't read it to run. Um, but uh, yeah, then it's one of the issues is assuming they have actually have lost the source code. That is truly what it is. Blizzard can't build one of these now. They could reverse their engineer their own product. Well, they can take this open the source version, thing. I guess. Yeah, but they can't make a Diablo one source code that's now compiled for modern hardware. Now, what if we were to remaster this? So we've got this Diablo source code. We can build Diablo and rerun it on a modern Windows machine. We can compile it for Switch. What if we were to remaster it? And so rather than just reproducing the the now very dated-looking graphics and sound effects of a 1996-era video game, <laughs> uh, we remaster it with modern models. We update it to 4K, make it look fancy, modern, and new. Still giving it away for free. Do you think that change? It's a derivative work. It's still a copyright yeah, violation. Keep in mind, all of this is copyright violation. We're talking about whether or not how does fair use apply here, and fair use yeah. being complicated. The 
the thing we get into with this is it's would somebody still consider this fair use? And now we bump into the when does it stop being fair use? Because we have the spectrum, right? If you're making just direct copies, it's copyright infringement. If it's if it's a it's if it's based on the copy or incorporates the copy, it's a derivative work, which is copyright infringement. If it uses some of it or references it, then sometimes it's fair use. And if it's completely different, then it's none of those things, yeah. right? So where does a remastered version fit into that spectrum? It's a really tough call. It's a tough call as to exactly where a remastered version comes into the spectrum. The second thing is, regardless of where you're on that spectrum, what isn't is not fair use has its own balancing test. We've talked about this before. Yeah. What's the purpose of the use? How much of it was taken? Stuff like that. Now, I think the key thing to keep in mind in this is of the four factors, three of these are going to fall pretty heavily in the copyright holder's favor. This is obviously the exact game. Yeah. So, I mean, we're talking about the fact that there's a lot of it. Does it affect the commercial value of the game? Unquestionably, it is the game, you know, mm-hmm. those kind of things. But, but what we bump into is it's available on GitHub, it's free. It's not a commercial use. It's just being provided, which is the one of the, the fourth and oftentimes considered the most important category of fair use. The, and that, which is the effect of the market for the original. Yeah, the there, is the no original. For the there original, is no market for right? the original. There is no market for the original. Because you're, 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 not, you're not affecting any market. There's, there is zero yeah. market. So Blizzard's not selling effect. it. Yeah. But I guess the interesting question to me is, Blizzard's not selling it because presumably the source code's gone and they can't. Now that somebody's done this... Um, they can know, presumably do the same. I mean, I guess, you know, could, could Blizzard make a remastered version and sell it for 15 bucks a pop? Maybe. Maybe. You yeah. Know, then there wouldn't be a market, but there's not one now. Um, but if, if, so if the hobbyists who did this were to remaster it and then try mm-hmm. to sell it, does that change things? And I, I, think, it, I think it does. Yep. And not necessarily for fair use reasons, more for practical reasons. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, one reason why Blizzard's probably not, you know, pitching a fit about this is it's not costing them anything. But also... We're talking about default rules under the Copyright Act. The copyright in Diablo will still exist sometime in the next century, long yeah. after we are we are all uh, being. Yeah, assuming eaten the game by was worms. published in 1996, it will expire in 2096, if not after. Yeah. So so after yeah after we're long in the ground, uh, this game is still copyrighted and owned by somebody. But what what is the copyright worth to a game that's that old? Nothing, right? Uh, so the default rules, you know, like I said, the, the copyright rules for software are, are the same for a book, but, you know, but, but a book is not software. Software has a short shelf life. Books, you know, like a good piece of literature, lasts a lot longer. Except it does have a longer shelf life because people are obviously interested in playing this Yeah, the game. legacy gamers. But the, the default rules don't really work here, right? And what we're running into is something Kirk and I talked about this morning. The default rules for what's acceptable in a legal system, um, you know, are, are sometimes at odds with the social norms of a special interest community. And that's what we're dealing with here. We've got legacy gaming hobbyists. It's it's a dedicated group of people. I'm still on ISCA BBS, so I'm part of this group. Um, <laughs> and, but, and that's where this question came from. Yes, uh, but it's it's not a huge group of people, and and by the nature of legacy gaming, you know, everybody wants the latest and greatest and best and fastest and coolest looking. There's not a lot of people who are really interested in playing games designed, you know, 1996, 23 years ago. Yeah. Um, that's that's a small small group of people, and you know it may be that Blizzard is just willing to overlook this because it's it's a game company. It's populated by nerds, yep. you know, like us, uh, and and they they see that there's no real commercial threat to anything they're doing now, and and so so why why get involved? Like why why go in here and stir the pot? And I mean what, I mean first of all, what are their damages? So let's yep. say they wanted to put a stop to this. They're going to file an injunction against BitHub and get it taken offline. Okay, that's going to cost a lot of money. What does that get you? Well, they could do it with a takedown notice, presumably, which yeah, isn't they, that expensive. Yeah, I guess you're right. That, that one wouldn't be. Um, but what does it get you? What, what, what do you gain from that? They take that? it down. They take it down. How does that help Blizzard's bottom line? Yeah. It, it doesn't, doesn't. Right? It doesn't really <laughs> do anything. Uh, but does it piss anybody off? Yeah, it might. Yeah. Yeah, it's going to make a lot of people real mad. And so, you know, the, the law sets up these default rules. We kind of talked about how with a ULO, we contract around them. The default rule is, you know, reverse engineering for interoperability is a fair use under certain circumstances. We contract around that. We have a case here where the policing cost of enforcing the rights that you get by default just isn't worth it. Even yeah. a DMCA, you're going to alienate a bunch of people who aren't causing any harm. So you just choose not to. And I think the key thing here is this alienation. And, and this is a lot of what we were talking about in conjunction with it, which is the default rule here is written on the assumption that the latter company here is a competitor. 
That's yeah. the sort of way the rule is written. The copyright law is a B2B law. Yeah. It's meant to stop one person from unfairly competing with another person by free writing off their IP. Yeah. Now, the issue with it is, is we look at it and say that, okay, that's you know, sort of the way the law is. But the answer is the law applies in all situations. Yeah, it's it doesn't say that. specifically that way or whatever it is. And it's been applied in a B2C thing. We all remember the iTunes, you know, mm-hmm. you know even though we're not having iTunes anymore, Napster. we all remember the iTunes litigations and stuff like that against end users, you know, grandma being found guilty for $2 million of infringement for downloading nine songs illegally. You know, it's not that the law can't be used that way and has been used that way. And that's what what we really wanted to sort of get into and I think a little bit of the tension with the copyright is, you know, looking at this from a legal perspective, what is done here is copyright infringement. Looking for, at it and, and sort of unquestionably copyright infringement yeah. in many respects. Now, there's some arguments that it's not, but in many respects, it, it would be very difficult to defend a case that this yeah. is not if copyright Blizzard infringement. If Blizzard's on DMCA takedown, it's going to get taken down. It's going to get taken down. But what we bump into then is this running afoul of social norms that says this behavior is potentially one okay, potentially even encouraged, mm-hmm. and to the least expect that it's not, and nothing's being said affirmatively, maybe tacitly approved, yeah. just because of the fact that there's some benefit to Blizzard for this game existing in this form. Now compare you know? that to, like, I, I don't know this for a fact, but I'm going from memory here. This just occurred to me. I think Nintendo has been more aggressive about getting ROMs to the old NES games off the internet. Because yep. you can download an NES simulator, which which is okay to have. It's, it's, it's written from scratch to emulate the NES software. But the ROMs to the games themselves are, are still copyrighted by Nintendo. Yeah. And I think they're more aggressive about getting those offline. And I suspect it's because people are still paying money to download them off the Switch store. Yeah. Yeah, and that's I think that's the thing that we're really getting into with this, again, is the sort of social norm kind of component of it. And that's what we were... The thing that gets really hard when you're a lawyer in this area is that I think a lot of times when people look at these things, they grow up in the, hey, this isn't social norm, this is what it is. You know, there somebody today gets on GitHub that's familiar with it, that's, you know, in high school and says, hey, this is a cool game. I get this game. They find the backstory of how this was created and say, hey, I can do that with this new modern game that was just put out today. Mm -hmm. They do it and they get in trouble. And the answer is, well, why? I did the same thing that's been done for years, you know, and now I'm in trouble. And the answer is, is because both of them are wrong. Both of them have legal implications, but the, the social aspect around them changes. As an attorney, if somebody comes to me and says, can I do this? If you know, this person came to me and said, can I reverse engineer Diablo in this way? Our simple answer is no. Yeah. Are That's you a asking, violation. Are you asking me, is, is it lawful to do that? Yeah, I'm going to tell you no. Yeah, you're going to no, say don't no. Do that. And again, but it's it, it's been done, and nothing yeah. seems to be doing done well, about it. And this is it. where like, like online social, like Twitter, for example, so much copyright infringement is, is gotten away with on Twitter. Yeah. And people see that, and they, and they see that it keeps happening over and over, year after year. And so they just assume that it's legally permissible. Yeah. It's not. It's just that the odds of any one person being caught are relatively low. And you have the same situation here. What is what benefit is it to a company to come like what what does NBC get to come chase down everybody with a Jim and Pam Halpert uh, animated GIF meme? You know that they're using on Twitter. Yeah. Are, are they going to find all eight million people who tweeted that out today and shut them all? <laughs> yeah. what, what do they get out of that? There's nothing, right? It costs a ton of money. It's a lot of hassle. And what's it costing them? I mean, the, the office is still making money, yeah. right? So but at the same time, any one of them may get come after. That's the thing. And since most people doing this are just individual consumers, there's really no harm, right? But if it's instead, and I'm making this up, if it's CBS. <laughs> you know, or or ABC or somebody else using Fox these, News. or Fox, <laughs> and, and if they're using it in connection with promoting their own stuff, well, now we have a competitive use, a more commercial, you know, misuse of the IP, and you may see them say, "Wait a minute, you know, if you know, you guys, that, that that's not okay. You can't yeah. do that." And and actually, a great example of this is is the syncing of music to video on YouTube. Yeah, and you know that was a big issue a number of years ago because what you bumped into is there's lots of licensing you can get to use music, but you can't sync music to video. There's the simple sort of piece about it. We've talked about this before. That's a unique type of license that you need. There's no easy way to there's get no it. There's no collective way to get it. You got to go negotiate it with the label and with the publisher. Yeah, but people were doing this on YouTube because people did it. You know, you you took videos of your baby dancing to you know mm-hmm. a song and it was hilarious. It's not hilarious without the music. You know, that's the kind yeah. of thing. So they posted these things to YouTube. This is an area where you know, my understanding is YouTube basically settled with all these companies. There's a huge license agreement in back. Basically, you're covered by a EULA 
for YouTube, yeah. which allows you to do this some of this. This is all solved by contract. In certain scenarios. And again, I haven't reviewed the, the specific EULAs of YouTube, but you know, you've got that kind of thing sort of out there where it's, hey, again, sort of socially un- in the, the place that this has come. This has become acceptable, but now the law has actually codified behind it, even though it's not law, it's contract that's, you know, sort of private related to it. Yeah. But as long as it's going up on YouTube, it's subject to YouTube's licenses. This, this may be these kind of issues where there's an economic or a market reason why a, a, an otherwise viable lawsuit is not asserted. Yep. Maybe why people so strongly tie copyright to money and we're, we're this sort of uh, internet mythology of, but I'm not making any money off of it, so it's not infringement. I think this is the genesis of that. Yeah. Is you know, so let's let's talk really quickly for a copyright infringement. What are the damages you can get? You can get your actual losses, which yep. for Blizzard in this case is basically nothing. Yep. You can get uh, your you know disgorgement of profits. Well, they're giving it away, so there's, so nothing. there's nothing. Or statutory damages, which which, you know, could be for willful infringement, which this arguably is up to $150,000. Per right? infringement, that's per download. Yeah. Is it per infringement or per work? Well, it can be per download. Is it? Yeah. So that's potentially a lot. But here's the thing. Do these people have $150,000 per download to give to Blizzard? No. no. They're defendant-proof judge or, or judgment-proof defendants, right? There's, there's no assets That's a phrase that gets get. used a lot of times by lawyers. Judgment-proof yeah. defendant is a defendant it, that effectively could never pay a judgment paid yeah. against so, them. So what's the point? You're going to file this giant lawsuit? I mean, you'll, you'll never even get your attorney's fees back from any of these people, and you'll alienate the community of, of hobbyists who've really done you a favor. You know, they've, they've gotten this software out there that, that everybody loves. But at the same time, they've done so committing copyright infringement against the property, which is clearly yours. And are you going to now have a problem later on if somebody does try to do this commercially of saying, yeah. well, you acquiesced to it. The, yeah. the legal term here is what's called estoppel. Yep. And the idea that basically says, since you've acquiesced to doing A, that's the equivalent to, to now acquiescing to doing B because somebody followed on from your prior acquiescence. These are the problems you get into in copyright. And, and in some is, sense, this is why fair use is so hard um, as a concept. Why we, we harp on it in the show a lot, you know, we talk about fair use, is because... A lot of times the answer to it is, is what we have here may or may not be fair use, but it's in nobody's interest to determine whether or not yeah. this one is, and other than we need to know what this one is for something in the future. It, it might be, and this may have happened, I don't know, but I, if I'm thinking of putting my I'm Blizzard's lawyer hat on, I'd reach out to these guys and be like, I'm going to, you know, this is copyright infringement. It's cool copyright infringement. We're very impressed. Uh, here's our license agreement. You can continue to do this as long as you distribute open source for free under this open source license. Uh, and, and and it's a non-commercial license so that nobody can start. And you can't selling. remaster the game? Yeah. Yeah. If only something like that, let us know. Uh, but in the meantime, this here is ours, yep. uh, and you can continue to use and it. Just, Thank you, know, you very much. That does happen. Yeah, I, that I does happen. was involved in the conjunction with a client. That's how fan that was fiction doing gets done, right? Yeah, I was doing. There was doing a, an, an issue that was potentially a copyright infringement. Uh, the company that owned the original copyright found out about it. They thought it was a great idea. They actually originally thought he was doing something different than what he was. When they found out what he was actually doing, they thought it was a great idea, and they licensed him. They granted him a license to do this under very favorable terms because they thought it was a great idea, um, and. You know, from his point of view, and especially you know, as, as you know, working as a lawyer in this case, this is the best outcome you could possibly have. I mean, this went from we're not sure if this is okay to this is unquestionably okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, and you take it out of the estoppel thing too, where you say you acquiesce. Well, yeah. no, we have a contract and yeah. we have conditions. Which if you breach, you've breached the contract, and now we'll come after you. Yeah, and, and we had, and it, again, it was a very favorable contract for us. Yeah. You know, we liked the way it was. We could easily work within the criteria, and they also now knew they were protected. They couldn't get that estoppel, but they also knew we had to produce a quality product. That was part of the requirement. Well, that's another thing you get into is, you know, th- there's a whole trademark aspect of this we haven't even talked about. You've got a third party now distributing something called Diablo. Well, not really. It's called Devilation. The, pro- the project's called Devilation, but when you run the game, it says Diablo on the front, yeah. right? So, you know, does... I don't know if there's really any risk of, of trademark uh, problems here. It's, if it's the original game, it's the same quality. Who cares? But you know, if you're, if you're Blizzard, you want to have some ability to say, wait a minute, you, you, you can't slap our Diablo name on, on variants or, or, or different versions of this that you know, don't, don't, aren't the same as the original, basically. You can't materially change the game in some way. But yep. the bottom line is, this is basically, we have a public law, the Copyright Act, that defines these default rules. We have the private law, which is the EULA, that alters those rules. And here we have a situation where they've, they've collided. And one of the ways that you solve something like this is just go back to the private law. Just come up with a contract or a license to negotiate the terms on which you'll allow what, what's basically kind of cool, um, you know, socially normative behavior to continue that while a violation of the law isn't really hurting anybody. Yeah, and that's, and again, that's kind of getting to the YouTube scenario where basically, they, they, and my, you know, my understanding is YouTube has negotiated a license of how this works. Um, but I think the thing you bump into there is it's, 
there's a lot of these. And and every one of these we're talking about is now an individual licensing scenario. It's it's whack-a-mole. You may not be able, you know, even yeah. if you wanted to license all these, you may not be able to find them. Well, these, yeah, these platforms keep popping up. You know, we had Vine for a while. Now that's gone. And now it's TikTok, I think, is the TikTok, new one. Yeah. One of my kids is constantly <laughs> sending me TikTok videos. I just learned about TikTok like two days ago. So. I mean, too. I'm like, I keep getting these texts from my daughter. And I'm like, what the heck is TikTok? Like, it's hilarious. <laughs> uh, it's not. But anyway. <laughs> so, yeah, this we could we could do a whole separate thing on, on trademark. And there's, there's a lot to unpack here. But I, I, as you can tell, the, the technical background of this took longer than I thought to go through. But there's a, there's a lot to it. The those of you who have a background in development, I think, will will appreciate uh, the issues here probably a little better, it, but hopefully it's accessible yeah, to everybody. And I think the key takeaway from it, what we wanted to really sort of get across in conjunction with this episode, when we talk about something like reverse engineering, we really have to talk about the fact that from a an external 5,000-foot view, we are talking about an illegal activity. Yeah. And, and in many respects... There, there's some there's some nuance in it, but the nuance may not matter that much depending on exactly what's happening. You know, you can very easily say we're more into the nuance or we're less into the nuance, yeah. but it's a nuance. I mean, that's the reality of it. I mean, in 1996, we didn't have a DMCA, yeah. and so all we had was was court decisions finding that reverse engineering for certain purposes are are fair uses and under certain circumstances. But that's not a legislative choice that Congress made. Yeah. You know, and and to some extent, the legislative choice was to say, oh, the judicial doctrine of, of fair use. Yeah, we we agree that that's a thing. Yeah. But they and didn't what tell us have, what it was. Yeah. And what we have is we have a collision with a social norm that sort of has grown up in a post this world. Yeah. And we've now got a law that said we have a law, we have a modification of the law in the EULA. We have mo- potential modifications to that in another EULA, all of which exist outside of the social norm, which has grown up post all of them. Yeah. And how do we deal with that? And I think that's the thing where a lot of people get very frustrated with the law is they look at it and say, but I should be able to do this because yeah. of the social norm. And the answer to it is, is not necessarily. The social norm yeah. doesn't write the law. This is, this is where I think young lawyers especially struggle a little bit is the difference between is this legal and how likely am I to be uh, to have for there to be consequence, right? Is this legal versus can I get away with it? <laughs> well, I mean, any of you who've driven a car have probably violated the the rules for the speed, yeah. right? How many times have you done that and not been pulled over and gotten a ticket? The vast majority. Yet right? recognize if you drive past a police car and you're going one mile an hour over the speed limit, he is yeah. completely legit and pulling you over. Yeah. And this is this is the classic case of you know, but everybody else was speeding. Why me? Doesn't matter. You yeah. know, the social norm may say that this is this is generally permitted and, and not prosecuted, but if you happen to be the one person someone decides to make an example out of, it's not much of a defense, and yeah. which is why as lawyers, you have to tell people, these are these are what these guys' rights are. You could be the one. You could be the one. Do you want to be the test case or not? Yeah. If you don't, then don't do it. If you want to take that risk, you know, that, that's a business judgment to make. In some ways, that's a much harder decision to make than what we do. Yep. <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, we've, we've uh, gone on long enough about this. We'll wrap this up. I think next time we're going to go back to talking about specific legal disputes and we're looking at maybe doing an episode on some of the Dungeons and Dragons uh, lawsuits and disputes of the 80s and 90s. There's a lot of fun stuff back yeah, there. Yeah, there's a lot that uh, fun to us. Yeah, not to them. Uh, and this, uh, Ed from Grand Rapids, I believe, is the one that gave us this topic. So we're going to look into that. Uh, there's also a long series of vacations coming up. So Kirk's going uh, out of the country for the next two weeks. Uh, he gets back and two days later I leave uh, to, for Colorado. Uh, we might be able to squeeze in our next episode in the couple of days that we're both in the office. Uh, but if not, then we'll have to record one when we get back. So our next episode, if it's not on time, will come out probably mid-August. Yeah, we'll have to see what it is. But yeah, just be aware that there may be a, a late episode in there. We may skip an episode. We'll see exactly how it goes. Yeah. So there's the music, and it's time to go. Check out our website at lggpodcast.com. It has links to the various platforms where you can download prior episodes and get in touch with us on Twitter, Facebook, and by email. Subscribe to this podcast on all the platforms and give us a review to help new listeners find us. We should mention, by the way, for some reason last Last month, our, our listenership took off. Yes, we, we, <laughs> we more than doubled our prior record for monthly downloads, including in prior months where we had two or three episodes come out over the course of the month. So I don't know. We see you, Texas. You're responsible for a lot of this. I don't know if it's a <laughs> bot or something down there, but you're generating a lot of listens. Uh, so anyway, uh, subscribe to the podcast. Get us more listeners. We love it. You can find me on Twitter at Benjamin Siders, and Kirk is at Kirk DMN. That's all for today. We'll see you next time. Lorem, play us out. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by Lewis Rice LLC, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. This podcast was produced and recorded at Cool Fire Studios in St. Louis, Missouri. 